Hi, and welcome to the Productize Podcast. If you haven't subscribed already, you can find the Productize Podcast from your favorite podcast player app, and you can subscribe from there. This is our show where we talk with productizers and innovators and cover the stories behind great product experiences and why it matters to innovators and makers like you. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Productize Podcast. My name is Indre Marquis. I'm one of the co-founders of Productize, and I'll be your host today. Um, for the past few years, we've been doing a series of interviews with product innovators that have been able to beat the ceiling and become successful makers, entrepreneurs, agents of change. And our mission is to inspire, connect, and empower more people to get into product roles. And our guest today is Kerry Jenkins. Hi, Kerry. Welcome to... Um, welcome for being here today. Um, I think you're based in Seattle. Is that correct? That's that's correct. Right, so it's like eight hours difference uh, from Lisbon. That's right. Yeah, it's nine a.m. here in <laughs> <Yeah>. Seattle, <laughs> so right. it's morning for me. It's morning for you. It's uh, late, um, late. Well, almost late, late evening here. It's uh, five five p.m. So, um, Carrie, uh, let me introduce you a little bit uh, in case you you didn't read the. Um, the bio of Carrie. So Carrie is uh, Jenkins. She's the CEO of Substantial, a world-class digital innovation and build studio. They're known for partnering with future-driven organizations like IDEO and many others to create meaningful business-changing digital products and cultures. And Carrie spent many years leading large inter- interdisciplinary teams and multi-channel digital projects. She's super passionate about the intersection of ethics and technology. That's actually one of the topics that we're going to talk about today and deeply invested in fostering open dialogue about the influence of technology in our lives. So Carrie, welcome. And let me ask you you my first question, which is um, if you could just tell us a little bit about you yourself as a as a person, as a CEO, how how do you define yourself, and um, you know the the story about your journey because you you started, you've worked many many years um, leading not just as a CEO but also in other roles. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about that journey? Yeah, I'd love to. So I actually started off in in journalism uh, a long time ago (laughs) in the 90s and thought that was going to be my my lifetime career. I studied journalism in graduate school and afterwards got a job at a magazine and um, actually got pretty disillusioned with magazine journalism pretty quickly. But one of the things that I I was got to do in that job was um, two things that became very important to my career path. One was that I was assisting the managing editor and the editor in chief. Um, mm-hmm. So I was assisting the two people who actually put out the magazine, had the vision, and were in charge of execution. And and there was two very very strong, powerful women. And the mm-hmm. other. The other thing I got to do at that job that had a huge impact on my career was that one of my responsibilities, frankly, kind of a side responsibility that just nobody else wanted at the time, was to help manage the editorial calendar on the magazine's website. So this was in, you know, 1998 or so, and websites were still very new and magazines were sort of barely paying attention to them, not pushing that much content. The magazine I happened to work for prioritize it a bit more than other magazines might have because it had a slightly younger demographic. Which, um, that, which, mag- which magazine it was? was that? Um, it was a magazine called Jane, 
magazine, oh. which is now yeah. defunct, but was uh, uh, the uh, sort of Jane Pratt, who used to be the editor of Sassy. It was her second magazine. Um, and Not to be was, confused with, with Jane's The Defense magazine, right? No. <laughs> no, right. no, this is a women's interest magazine. Right. Uh, it was around for about 10 years. And of course, now since defunct. But at the time, it, it skewed slightly younger and was certainly, um, you know, hipper and trying to be more cutting edge. And so they paid a little bit more attention to the website than other magazines might have. And so that experience was really interesting for me. I worked closely with uh, a web team that was also happened to be um, all women and learned a lot about digital product and pushing content and creating content and all of those, all of those kinds of things. And so I left that job and really, in some respects, left New York City, where I was living at the time, and had a you know the crisis that many people do in their late twenties, like what am I going to do with my life? And the experience I had working with the website was very unique at the time, and I, it opened a lot of doors for jobs. And so that that's really what funneled me into working in digital product was that very early experience. So that's um, that's when you realized you wanted to be in tech. Or... No, that's when I really needed a job. <laughs> I had the mm. experience to do it. So it was kind of a meeting of this is the experience I have and these are the jobs that are available. And so I said, well, I'll, I'll go down this path. It, was, it, took, it took several years for me to decide, well, I, well, I actually like this. And, and remember, again, the you know, digital world was very, still very new at that point. Mm-hmm. And so what I mostly did for the next five, six years was work within marketing and advertising agencies to help them build supporting digital products for brands. Um, I did that both within companies, uh, both digital companies and uh, in more typical agencies and also went out on my own as an independent consultant and did that um, for for several years before I ended up getting recruited out to Seattle to be mm-hmm. a digital product manager um, and project manager. And so that's why I came out to Seattle. That was about 14 now years ago. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I really got deeper into product and particularly the move to Seattle, which was a much more sophisticated product culture than I had been in previously. Right. But I really well, why, why is that? Is is it because you know Microsoft is around, Amazon is around? Is is it because of the tech hub? What what, what do you Yeah, mean? yeah, I think it's fair to say. I mean, you know, West Coast product styles is really specific mm. and and Seattle was a real technology hub because of Microsoft and Amazon. And so it was a, a I was coming from, you know, New Orleans at that point. And, mm-hmm. and so I was coming from a much smaller market and, uh, you know, an environment that was m- much less, <laughs> uh, you know, entrenched in, right. in digital product development than, than we were in Seattle. And so that was, that was probably when I really started to appreciate the, the challenges and the growth and learning potential. Um, but it was still, you know, a, a good seven, eight years of me working in teams, leading teams and, and managing, you know, really insanely intense timelines and schedules and, releases and deployments of digital products in in the trenches um, in a mostly client services environment. So for most of my career, I have been in client services, meaning as a consultant, not on the client side, building and internal product teams. So in in much of that, I was also, you know, a primary client 
contacts. So there's always been, uh, for me, this sort of dual side to to the value I bring, which is that I'm incredibly hands-on with the team internally and and working and contributing at the initiative at the, at the ground level. But I also have always had to play a very externally facing client client services role. And, and so I did that for, you know, like I said, another eight or, or so years. Mm-hmm. And, and then was at another sort of inflection point in my career and deciding what did I want to do next? And I happened to hear about a little company called Substantial from a friend of a friend who was working there. At the time, it was very small. There was, you know, maybe 20 people there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they said they were looking to bolster their client services capabilities. Maybe you should go talk to them. And I did. Um, it was, you know, a company of mostly men at the time, mostly men in their 20s, frankly, <laughs> very early 30s. It was founded by uh, a man in his, at the time, early early 30s, and mm. actually late 20s. And so they really didn't have client services as a capability. And I had a very strange interview with these cowboys uh, <laughs> and, and sort of left going, well, I don't know what that company is about really, but they definitely want to build digital products. They definitely have incredible engineering chops. And I'll just put them, I'll just put them aside for a little bit. And I continued my job search and finished a big project I was working at at the, at the company I was at at the time. And then decided after that project was done that it was time to get serious about my next move. And I reached out to Substantial again and said, hey, are you guys still looking? You know, maybe I could come in and talk to some more people, uh, which is an important lesson, right? I reached back out to them. I did not I did not wait for them to come and call in. I reached back out and said, hey, are you still looking? And they said, yes, we are. <laughs> and okay. so I went back and met more people and and decided to go on there uh, and really was part of their, their first initial push to have a client services team. That was my, that has been my job. So what I did is, is what we call engagement management at Substantial, which is a combination of product management, project management, and account management. Mm-hmm. And because can, can, again, can you we, tell us a little, a little, a little bit about that? Yeah. What what is yeah. engagement management? And um, well, it'd probably be helpful in case it wasn't clear about Substantial. So what Substantial does is work with companies. Startups, enterprises, foundations, um, to help them strategize, create, conceptualize, build, and deploy, and in many times sustain their digital innovation projects. So uh, that could mean, um, and sometimes not even digital. So they're innovation services, right? We, we definitely do work in the space that actually doesn't result in a digital product. But I would say primarily what we end up doing is is building out uh, a new service line or a new digital product for clients. Um, And what that means is that we're usually in somewhat working with maybe an existing team that they have, or we are their entire product team during the lifetime of the engagement. So you can imagine in a situation like that, an engagement manager has to wear a lot of hats. It's both a contribution role, like you might see uh, as a product manager in a client-side company, right? Um, It's also a project manager because there's lots of coordination, right? And collaboration that has to happen in that environment. And then of course, there's an account management perspective because it's a client services role, right? We, We are working in service and in partnership with, the company or client that we are working with. 
so it's a it's a really um, impactful role, and it's a really challenging role. So you and, actually have the role to find as engagement manager, yes, right? Yes, okay. we do, because you can imagine that some of the companies we work with, they, they might have a product manager on their side, and it might be mm-hmm. confusing. They're like, well, I don't understand what role you play. Other companies we work with don't have a product manager. They don't even they don't even know really how that might work. If this is their first product they're building, either because they're a startup or because digital products are not their core part of their business, they might not even understand what the product manager role does. So it's important for us to have a role and a person capable of wearing a lot of different hats and helping fill in the gaps, right, in the engagement. And you know, the people who work in that role, many of them are like me, come from a product management background. So we have a lot of product experience. Um, but I would say it's a it's a challenging role that actually, um, you, you, you again, you play a lot of hats. <laughs> you might be problem solving in the technology space or helping to problem solve in the design space. And the next minute you're ordering lunch for, you know, three teams and coordinating it across time zones. Like it's... <laughs> It's a very humble um, but powerful position, uh, as I think many product management positions are. Uh, and and that's, that's really, you know, that was the background I came from. And Substantial did it in a really uniquely refreshing way, incredibly transparent and honest, building really, really healthy relationships with the clients where there wasn't a lot of subterfuge. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of like duck paddling underneath the water while you try to stay really smooth. It's sort of built a... a uh, cohesive team with the client and partner and and we don't disappear right like the traditional agencies and even some of the digital agencies I've worked with there was a model of you know you present a lot of pretty pictures and then you disappear for a while from the client when you come back you show them all of the great work you've done and, and then there's tons of feedback and you know maybe you've you maybe you've done what they've wanted, or maybe you haven't come even close and there's a a ton of waste in that kind of situation. So I really appreciated that Substantial handled that really differently. What what, what do you love about the role? What do you love about the job? Well, the the interesting thing is, I mean, that role is what led me to the leadership position. So I went from being an engagement manager to director of client services, uh, and then vice president of client services. And once I got into a leadership position, I was uh, leading both the delivery aspect of what we do at Substantial, but also the business development aspect of what mm-hmm. we do at Substantial. Uh, and that was a really, really powerful learning experience, right? Because I was both um, on the the front end, as we might say, helping to shape the kind of work that we would do and helping to shape the relationships of the clients and partners we bring on and and prioritize those. Um, And then on the other end, figuring out how we're going to execute on it, how we're going to be successful and learning from the moments when we're not as successful as we want to be. And that experience specifically led to me becoming CEO because Mm -hmm. getting into business development was not something I'd ever really done in my career. It was incredibly new, very challenging. And uh, and scary. And I really jumped into it, crossing my fingers <laughs> and yeah. spent a lot of time learning and a lot of, uh, it had a lot of humility in the moments that I failed. And what were, what were your learning tricks? Were you, did you, ha- did you have a mentor? <laughs> did you have someone inside the company that you were looking to? Well, it's an interesting question. So the, What's really interesting about Substantial is that from honestly the moment I came in, I've been the most, um, one of the most senior client services people at the company um, mm-hmm. and the most senior woman at the company. Mm-hmm. So there came a point when I realized that I had transitioned from a much, much larger company that had tons of women you know, above me to a company where um, 
I really needed to be the mentor <laughs> for the people um, that I was leading. And that was a really interesting, you know, mental shift when you, when you get to a certain point in your career or even a certain age mm-hmm. um, and at some of these smaller companies people i'm sure experience this a lot at startups where you realize yeah. no you're you're the mentor <laughs> right. so what i did do is get an executive coach and um coaching is a benefit that substantial released several years ago to everyone um and so i had a coach an, an, exter- an external coach an external coach mm-hmm. um and i took full advantage of that benefit uh, and that was a huge help on the road to both even thinking I could take on the CEO mm-hmm. role and certainly the transition to being CEO. And now I, and I highly recommend that. That's not to say I don't um, have some mentors, but none that I directly work with at my company. Um, that said, I work with amazing people that I learn from all the time. So I might not describe it as a typical mentor-mentee relationship, but I learned from all of the leaders at my company and frankly, all of the people who work at my company every day, uh, truly I do. And it's one of the reasons that I've been at Substantial as long as I have and, and wanted to be CEO because it's an, it's an insanely rich learning environment. And that's true from every single level of the company. Um, so I never want for learning and growth in my current environment, even though I wouldn't say I, I have a typical mentor. All right. But one of one of the things that you were saying um, that resonate with me and sometimes I actually think about it as we, you know, we, we work here in a smaller environment ourselves is that, um, you know, if you were saying that you were coming from an industry where you were the most senior, where, where you were not the most senior person, you had lots of people um, and, and lots of women that were much more senior than you. And you, you, you shifted from what is essentially a traditional industry um, magazine into tech. Um, and there's so many opportunities doing sometimes those transitions, right? Where the, 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 there's so much blood in the water, there's so much so crowded of people with lots of seniority, but the, the fact that the industry is simply going downward or is not moving so fast doesn't allow for people that are really, really talented to, um, you know, to um, take responsibility and to grow and, and, and to move on. So one of the, the things that um, I, I like to understand is when did you realize you wanted to be the tech industry? Was it after you did the move? Too substantial? Was it before, and you already consider yourself being in, inside the tech industry before that? Uh, what, when was the transition effective in your mind? Yeah, I remember at the company I was at before substantial, you know, all of my projects were technology projects, but right. I would not have described myself as in the technology industry at that point. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons is because the work that I did still seems incredibly siloed from the actual technology team that was doing the building and deploying. Hmm. And that's not entirely untypical in a traditional agency, although I think the product culture has sort of taken over in in most places now. And I think most people realize that that's a really antiquated way of building a product to have sort of, you know, um, the front of the house completely segregated from the back of the house. Um, But Going to substantial in, in summer sex was me specifically making a choice to to choose technology to really 
be at a company that that's what they were primarily known for and that that's what most of the employees specialized in and to to really jump in to that environment. And, you know, I don't have a computer science degree. I would not consider myself. I struggle with technology products just like the next person, even though I run a technology company. Uh, but working hand in hand with uh, developers and engineers and designers all at once to build a product has been an astonishingly positive experience for me from a learning in perspective. And so that to me really was when I would consider myself now I'm in the technology industry. Now we partner with technology companies as well, mm -hmm. right? We work mm -hmm. with companies who specialize in technology. We also work with lots of companies who really don't know their way through technology. And, and that's one of the reasons why they really need our help. Um, and it's interesting to work with both kinds of clients, right? The clients that are really sophisticated as far as how they um, innovate their services and products and those those companies that are just starting out and really conceptualizing what that what that looks like. But for me, I, and this is one of the reasons why I both stayed at Substantial as long as I have, but also really wanted to lead the company. Um, this is the first time this experience in my career is when I would really say um, I'm a technologist, even though, again, I'm, I have no computer science degree. I'm, right. I'm not a product designer. Uh, but I think this is- But you are, you are a product person. I absolutely am a product person through and through. And it's one of the things I talk, I talk to product communities a lot. And as you mentioned in the intro, and particularly about ethics in technology. And one of the things I try to impress upon people is how much power you have as a technologist and defining ourselves as technologists, even if you are not the person who is writing lines of code right. or wireframing an interaction. If you are working in a product space, if you are on a team who's objective is to release <laughs> technology into the world you're a technologist right absolutely uh, and yeah and and you're saying you're talking about your executive coach practice um but i guess that was definitely not the only thing you were doing so how did you manage to get where you were today we're actively approaching this um has an objective was was were you being <laughs> were you pushing it or you're being kind of pulled to the top how do you how do you um, feel that I definitely was not, this was never an objective. I have never once in my career said, it, there was one time I said it and it was right before <laughs> I was given the job. Um, that's not to say I didn't fight for it, but uh, I never thought I would be a CEO. I did very much enjoy the leadership journey uh, and the growth and the utter humility of making mistakes and learning from them and picking myself back up the next day and trying again and, and doing that in a way that was very in front of the company company and, and obvious. And, and so after a few years on the leadership team, it, there became an opportunity where I realized our current CEO was going to step down. And I had a sort of offhand conversation. I was with my coach actually and said, mm -hmm. you know, like, um, it'll be, it'll be really interesting to see who takes his place. Mm -hmm. And she, she said, why you wouldn't might be it be that person? <laughs> why wouldn't it be you? Exactly. And I was like, huh. Mm -hmm. And, and that was, that was it, you know, and uh, by, by four months later, um, I was in active discussions for the job, you know, tangential to that. And without me ever really doing anything with that for a few months, other than maybe talking to my husband about it, uh, our founder and, and 
you know, came to me and said, is this, are you interested in this? And so that became, you know, there was months of conversation about it. Um, there was lots of <laughs> debate and, and frankly, I really did have to fight for the role up until the moment that I got the call that I was given the role. Um, so I want to both impress upon the fact that it was not in my uh, career path mm-hmm. to be a CEO, but that once I decided that's what I wanted, I still had to fight for it. Right. And that's important for people to understand. You have to direct your career path and your ideas of what of what you want are gonna change a lot as you progress on that path. Absolutely. And as a manager today, what is like one of the, and I, I know maybe, maybe you guys are using OKRs and all this, um, all this uh, objective strategizing um, policies, but uh, as a manager, what is the most important goal that you now focus in in substantial? I think the most important goal that I focus on, and I, I still have quite a few direct reports, um, mm-hmm. is is growth, right? Helping the people that I work with understand that they have almost unlimited capacity to grow to what they want to do and what they want to be. That is the real turning point for my career, which is when I realized that, you know, even in my late thirties, early forties, like I still had so much to learn and that that was a good thing and not a bad thing. Right. Because particularly for women, we are put in environments where I think we feel like the outward appearance needs to be that we always know what we're doing and we always know the right thing to say. And we never ask a a dumb question. Right. And what that I think tends to do for women is make us feel like we can't admit we need growth um, or that we, we can't admit vulnerability uh, in in situations where we might not know the exact thing to do and that when we make mistakes, they feel um, heart-wrenching, they depress us. <laughs> Women can be real perfectionists. Um, and so for me, what I want to do, and I, I manage a lot of women, um, is really instill upon them this idea of an opportunity for growth and what that means. And that, I mean, growth is not uh, something that just happens and happenstance, right? You have to work for that. Um, but that that's what you should be working for. Like working for titles, right, is is really probably going to be a game that, that doesn't pay off in the end. Um, working for growth is going to pay off in the end. And that's the number one thing that I try to do. And, you know, we have a manager's forum at Substantial where we get all of our managers together. That's one of the number one things we work on um, in that group is how to encourage growth amongst our people. Um, Because in technology, technology never stops changing, right? It's changing every single (laughs) moment of every day. The landscape changes, the environment changes, the languages change, the platforms change. Be a technologist, you have to be ready for those changes no matter what. It doesn't matter how good you were yesterday at deploying something or designing something. You're going to have a whole new set of challenges today. And so if you can't come at that with the humility and the willingness to be wrong, to make mistakes, um, and the, I don't know, the the desire (laughs) more than anything to learn, um, it's not going to be fulfilling, right? It's not, it's, you probably won't grow. I mean, there's all of the things that it could do to your career mm-hmm. path, but yeah. more than that, it's not going to feel good. Your, your, your world is not going to feel good. Absolutely. Um, in your own words, um, I, I'm quoting you here, but you said it is hard to reflect on the last few years or even the last few months and ignore 
like you said, the role of technology platforms to play in our collective sense-making, our social relationships, our physical and mental health, and our politics and elections. So how and why did you become passionate about this intersection of ethics, technology? What was the trigger point and taking stock from what you just said? Yeah, well, I, interestingly enough, I said that probably seven or eight months ago. <laughs> So imagine us having eight months ago. That was a premonition, right? Right. I I said that like uh, a a long time ago, and now in nowadays. Um, And so it's interesting to reflect back on that quote. But a couple years ago, you know, not long after I sort of got my bearings as CEO, um, I I started thinking a lot about what it means to be a technologist, Um, Mm. and that for me clearly would intersect with who I am, who I am as a human being, which is a mother and a vast consumer of technology. I mean, I, I use all the platforms too, y'all. Uh, and it really started to me to think about what substantial was responsible for out in the world because we're a client services company. I think it would be easy for us to think that it's out of our control, that our clients, um, really are the ones in control of what their products do and how they do it. But that's that's not true. They come to us for our expertise. They come to us for our strategies and our skill sets. And we can, I think, be more intentional about how we help our partners. So it started in some respects as just what is Substantial's responsibility in the technology space to service its clients uh, ethically and morally to make sure that they're servicing their users mm-hmm. ethically and morally. And then it became a bigger conversation because I, I do get asked to speak in the community a fair bit, uh, mostly because I'm a, a woman CEO in technology, which I recognize um, is, is a rarer thing than it absolutely should be. But I really wanted to start those conversations out in the community because when I speak to the community, it's typically with a lot of product people who are earlier on in their careers, who are deciding where they go. Many of them already work for the largest platforms in the world or are working for startups um, who are desperately trying to be the next largest platform in the world. And if you're on the West Coast of the United States, as I am, the product culture here is incredibly strong. It's very fast paced. It's very competitive. So I wanted to reach the technology community at large to really talk to them about the responsibility they have as individuals, what they can bring to any situation as a technologist and as a product creator, whether they're working for Facebook or Amazon, or they're at the next startup down the street, or they're in a consulting environment like Substantial, but we have agency and that there are ways that we can um, further uh, ethical innovation in the space. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and I guess that, that that's why you published uh, the, last year, 2020, the framework for a more ethical innovation, right? Um, can you tell us a little bit about that framework? What's the result? Are you seeing any tangible, um, you know, results out of it? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's adopted widely and everything's good now. No. <laughs> No, I'm not seeing tangible results from it other than really meaningful conversations. And mm-hmm. um, and in some respects, that's what it's intended to do. So there are ab- tons of frameworks out there and processes that you can do in the design space for you know more ethical innovation. Um, human-centered research and human-centered design is certainly one of those. Um, there are there are lots of things you can do in the development space, um, you know, around security compliance and how we utilize people's data. 
my framework was really much more a set of questions that should be asked in the kinds of meetings that I've been in my entire career, right? These are the Mm. kinds of meetings that you have that are across discipline meetings or are with leadership making business cases. Um, These are the kind of meetings that prioritize resources for feature sets, all, all sorts of meetings. These are meetings with CEOs all the way down to meetings with, you know, product managers and individual contributors where we decide every single day, these, these micro decisions about what the product is going to do and how the user is going to interact and and what value we're supposed to be providing for that user. And that's really where ethics needs to happen. Um, It certainly doesn't replace a monetization strategy that comes from above, right? If the monetization strategy that comes down from leadership is wholly unethical, I'm not saying that an individual contributor with one micro interaction can, can change that. But what I am saying is that products are built with such large spread out teams at this point and are are built in moments throughout a given day, right? If If you're using modern software practices, which is becoming much more prevalent. Like they're very agile. Um, you might be using lean startup. Mm-hmm. Those micro decisions that happen throughout the day have huge impacts on the product that's going to get released to the user. Can, can, can you sub- substantiate, and this is not a pun on the name, on a specific <laughs> example of um, an ethical decision that you encounter often that you might want just to elucidate what, what yeah. you're talking about? Well, so let me let me use a case study that I like to use a lot when mm. I when I talk about ethics and innovation, and it's a it's a, a med health platform. It's certainly not one that substantial was involved in, but this was a platform that was uh, built on uh, the backbone of an advertising platform, like many are. It was, it was a platform for doctors to use, and it it was free for them, for doctors, and helped them manage their individual practices. So it offered them some toolkits to help them manage their practices. And what it offered um, on top of that was advertising, right? So it was advertising to doctors. So the company that developed this, the startup, the question you might ask was, who, who was their customer? Was their customer the doctor? Or was their customer who's advertising on the platform? And right. Their users were doctors. Mm-hmm. Their customer were pharmaceutical companies, right? Because that's who was advertising on the platform. Mm-hmm. So when they started to build out feature sets for that platform and they started to do research, they they weren't thinking about what can we do to make doctors more efficiently give great medical advice to their patients. Mm-hmm. What they did was decide how can we get more eyeballs on our ads and sell more pharmaceutical companies' products. You can see the difference in the two things, right? Mm -hmm. And so a whole host of design meetings and technology meetings and prioritization meetings happened over year plus worth of time to develop a product that in the end was selling opioids, right, to doctors, was pushing opioids to doctors so that when they use the platform, for efficiency's sake, to help their patients, what they got was a pop-up that would encourage them to prescribe payments, regardless of whether or not that was the right thing to do in that patient's case. And it absolutely affected um, hundreds of thousands of patients and drove, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue for the pharmaceutical company. Mm -hmm. And so 
the reason I use that case study is because you can certainly imagine the original right meetings where some higher up leaders, the CEO, some vice presidents, and SVPs decided that their primary concern was their pharmaceutical company customer and that their advertising platform was ripe for this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But what I'm thinking about are the hundreds to thousands of product creators that worked on that over a year and a half who did the research because they actually did research, user research about whether or not this would make people prescribe more pain meds and whether or not that would increase addiction, right? They did all of that. They used design principles that we would hold dear, right? right. They the, used, e- the evil side of the force. Right, they used data principles and data security and they served their users. It's just nobody stopped to say, do we have the right users in this case? Mm-hmm. And. And you can imagine the fallout from that. So that's why I try to talk about the the individual responsibility we have. And the framework is really around those questions. These are questions that anyone should be able to ask in any meeting. And if there isn't an answer or the answer gives you pause. So I'm actually scrolling here through your, um, you know, the the framework and some of the questions, let's just maybe go through a couple of them. Yeah. Um, Well, Maybe here, syncing in systems. I don't know. Do you want to do have a favorite yeah, section? Let me, so, yeah, I think the thinking systems one is, is a really good one. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's five major sort of themes of this, which is to the first one is to lead from why, which is about why is this why is this product important and what is the value that you're bringing, right? Right. Have you thought critically about who this is serving, (laughs) what those objectives are and who's going to be impacted? And could you be transparent to every single person who's going to work on this product about what the intentions of this product are? And in the, in the med health, you know, question, I don't know if they were completely transparent and maybe they were, and hundreds of thousands, you know, hundreds to thousands of people decided to still work on it, or maybe they weren't. Um, the other big theme is is change the way your your company or your product team operates, the, the operating system. So if all of the decisions are being made top down, for instance, um, that can be a ripe environment for ethical trade-offs because the people lower down from those decisions don't understand why they're being made and they become order takers, right? They don't become individual thinkers about what is the best way to serve an objective. Are you incentivizing based on uh, success metrics that have nothing to do with the quality of the product? For instance, are you just incentivizing on speed to market or just incentivizing on eyeballs, right? These are the kinds of things that can also encourage trade-offs that can cross ethical boundaries. The third one is to reduce reduce blind spots. And this one is really about diversity in your team. And mm-hmm. we've heard a lot about diversity over the last few years and particularly over the last year. But I cannot express enough that if you take all of the moral and ethical reasons why diversity is important for our society, I can assure you, you will build a better product if you have a more diverse team working on it because more diverse points of view are much more likely to have richer ethical discussions 
right? Because ethics is a practice, right? It's not, it's not black or white. And so you have to have these discussions. You have to practice them often. And if you're able to do that with a healthy, psychologically safe, diverse team that has lots of different points of view, you're going to have a much more meaningful discussion than if you had a very homogenous team that's experienced mostly the same things, right? Which is what we get a lot on the West Coast. Well, how would you describe substantial as an inclusive workspace and you know, just to quantify that, how many people older than, I don't know, 50 or 60 do you have in your team? Uh, it's a great question. And over 50, maybe one. Um, over 40, maybe seven, of which I, <laughs> I've been one for quite a while. Um, mm -hmm. We are a work in progress and are failing in many respects, like many companies, particularly um, on the West Coast. Uh, it's a very homogenous environment in the technology space, and and we're failing at it, frankly. Uh, it's been something we've been working on with true like resources and budget for going on our second year. We started in um, in 2019 and gone through 2020, which is obviously a, an odd year for the world, but in our continuing this year uh, with with even more focus on it. And we still, and, you know, I have a, I have a fairly diverse executive team that I'm really proud of. I'm a female CEO. Um, we are still majority white at the company um, to a, to a degree that I think is not uh, healthy, nor does it depict our, you know, regional diversity. Um, so I wish I could say this was easy or that I had the answers. I don't, and, mm -hmm. but it is worth the work. And I can, I can tell you that because we even have clients at this point who, uh, particularly if they are working on products that have a large effect on vulnerable populations or really diverse populations, they want a representative team and good for them for demanding it. Right. Like, uh, and so regardless of whether we had decided to work on it or not, I can tell you there's going to come a point where it's not an option, right? People want to see a team that reflects society at large, building the products that are going to serve society at large. And that's, that's a, that's a fair want. Um, so this one, I think is the reduced blind spots is incredibly important. And then you mentioned one that I think is also really important, which is thinking systems. So one of the things that I think designers are starting to do much more often, um, which is good, but it shouldn't be siloed into design is more systems thinking. Mm -hmm. And what this is about is really pinpointing where your product lives in the ecosystem that it's going to uh, live in, right? And, and all of the other agents in that ecosystem, because one of the things that can really help in ethical innovation is thinking about unintended consequences. And you can't really think about unintended consequences. Yeah. We, had, we, had, we had a talk on unintended consequences uh, last year at Productize, actually 2019. Um, on how cities that have um, optimized for mobility ended up having lots of highways and lots of cars and how cities, uh, specifically the Netherlands, uh, that have optimized for more inclusive mobility ended up having bike lanes and a, a much more uh, livable um, cities, right? So that's, that, that's a great talk. You, you can yeah. 
Um, whoever is listening is going to check in. The systems change, right? So if 10 to 12 years ago, Facebook and and Twitter had decided to map out the ecosystems their products were going to live in so Mm. they could determine unintended consequences, right? It would, it would be a very different picture than what we see right now. Right. That doesn't mean they're not responsible, right? Um, Because this is an exercise you should be doing consistently. But what it does mean is that systems change. Mm. And while you might not think of yourself as a media company, (laughs) 15 years ago, as that system changes and the number one piece of content on your platform starts to be news or news-like objects, then mm-hmm. you have to think about those unintended consequences and you have to be Absolutely. active. So thinking so- system is not a one-time thing, right? It's an all-time thing. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So we have like one one last question here from uh, Beatrice, and this kind of interwines with a question that we tend to do uh, every uh, single, um, every single um, person we have in our podcast, which is: Is there, you know, any advice that you want to give uh, someone that wants to start in the tech industry? And the, the question from Beatrice specifically is, um, what is your 10 year goal when you are, when you were 24, right? And we kind of covered that through the interview, but, um, I guess you, you, you didn't think you wanted to be in the tech. You didn't think you wanted to be a CEO, but still, if you are 24 and I actually happen to know Beatrice is, I don't know, 24, 25, middle twenties, and she's a product manager at, uh, at a fairly successful uh, tech company here and in, in, in actually in London, uh, what kind of piece of advice can you give for a 10-year uh, goal plan um, if you are in the product space? Uh, it's, that's a great question, um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna be <laughs> I'm gonna be who I am in this moment and say I've mm-hmm. never had a 10-year plan. And okay. if the person asking the question is 24 and is working as a product manager uh, at a respected place in London, they were 10 years ahead of where I was. So I would mm-hmm. I would compare to where that person is to where I was when I was maybe 34 um, rather than 24. In my 20s, I was trying to figure out how I was going to pay rent, and you know, like a whole host of other sort of you know, <laughs> crazy things. I went to graduate school when I was 24. So that was one thing I did out of fear of what to do with my life. And it was, it was for journalism. So you can see how much that affected my, my 10 year plan. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still think it's a good question. And I would say what you think about one, think about where technology was 10 years ago. I mean, I just made, you know, a comment about that, of what the ecosystem for, um, you know, Twitter and Facebook would have looked like 10 years ago compared to what it actually is today. Technology changes an insane amount, even within one year, let alone a decade. So understand that if technology is what you're passionate about right now, what you're doing in 10 years could look very different. Um, and, and that's probably what's exciting to you. So the other thing I would say with 10 years of your career is that you should be chasing growth opportunities. You should be chasing great managers, great people to work with, um, Mm -hmm. more than you should be chasing the name of the company um, or the title. Now, I'm not going to tell you not to chase money because, again, that was (laughs) a decision I would probably do a little bit differently in my 20s if I could talk to myself when I was 24, which is be smarter about money and negotiate harder. So I would never tell you to turn down the massive salaries that they're offering at these huge technology companies if that's if that's important to you and that's what you need in your life. But money aside, <laughs> when you're when you're thinking about where you want to go, 
you should look for a diversity of opportunities, mm-hmm. meaning spend some time in a very large technology company and then spend some time at a small startup or a smaller company. Smaller uh, company. Yeah. Yeah. I do recommend that in any decade that a person starting out in their career, um, that they spend some time at a smaller company. The reason being, particularly if you're a woman, is that the impact you can make at a smaller company is much larger yeah. than the giant company. Yeah. Giant company, you are a cog in a very complex organizational system, right? That um, you know gets reorged pretty, pretty consistently and where you have very little say in the direction of the objectives you're working towards. At a smaller company, you have a much bigger impact. Now, it's a lot more responsibility. There's a lot more room for failure. There's a lot less money usually. Um, but that experience really does build leadership. So if in your head right now, you're thinking, well, I want to be a CEO or I want to be a leader. I want to be you know, any kind of leadership role. I would recommend in a 10-year time that you balance your your time between uh, large organizations and smaller company portfolio. So um, we got a list of books that you recommended. The one that caught my eye was Weapons of Mass Destruction. <laughs> so <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit what why why you recommended this book? Yeah. So Weapons of Mass Destruction came out actually, I think it's four years old now, which mm-hmm. is yeah, as it was 2016. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's mainly long time in technology um, times. There's a couple books that I really recommend for people who want to understand technology at a level that is maybe before this this current quagmire we find ourselves in. Um, and the two that I would most recommend are uh, plat- uh, Machine Platform Crowd and Weapons of Math Destruction. Um, Weapons of Math Destruction, we actually just did as a book club at Substantial. And uh, had a session on it leading up to our end of year uh, all company summit. And what it really is about is algorithms and how they are utilized both with technology companies and companies you wouldn't necessarily think of technology companies and what it what the unintended consequences are to the people affected by those algorithms. So the entire book is about unintended consequences. It's incredibly well written and well researched and it's in it's it's sort of the applied mathematics version of it, right? It's very applicable to both us as consumers um, and what you might be doing in a technology company, particularly if it uses big data and algorithms. Like I can't recommend it enough. It's a very easy read, um, but it's it's really it's really rich concepts. And even though it's again a little bit old at this point, it's all still incredibly valid. All right, yeah, all right, guys. So um, thank you so much, Carrie, for your time. It was really a pleasure to have you with us today. Um, and we cover so many topics and I can always, uh, also thank our listeners and whoever was on, on YouTube today on, on the live. If you want to listen to the podcast this Monday, uh, you can just subscribe it to your favorite podcast streaming platform. And if you want to read the recap, um, of this interview, we'll be publishing it on our productized medium. That's productized.medium.com. So, Kerry, thank you again and have an amazing day for you. Uh, and and I, I hope you can join us in a future session or here in Lisbon, hopefully after the whole situation is, is over. 
Um, I would love that. I've no. never been to Portugal. You've never been to Portugal? <laughs> I've never oh. been and I've always wanted to go. <laughs> I will you're, take you up on that. <laughs> you're more than invited. And um, yeah, we've been organizing the Productized Conference here in late November every single year since 2015. So um, unfortunately, last, last year we didn't do it. Uh, well, we didn't do it in person. We're still kind of understanding options for 2021, but we hope to come back in 2022 as the pandemic situation um, fades out. Well, I would love to. So thanks so much for having me. This was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Carrie. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. Yeah, you too. Bye. Bye.